investments in global health research. <clears throat> so what is 9090? This was in, 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 the, in 2014 during the 20th International Conference in Melbourne, United, United Nations AIDS program or UNAIDS launched this initiative. And the idea was to set targets to, for 2020. And again, I remember, remind you, we're two years away from 2020. So we're at the point that, that everybody's saying, well, are we gonna get there, yes or no? And 9090 targets are focused on improving the care continuum and emphasize viral suppression as a major goal of care for people with HIV. Remember for the very early years of PEPFAR, we were about how many people do we have on therapy? How many people can we get on therapy? Now really the goal is how many people can we have virally suppressed? And, and as was said previously uh, by Dr. Futterman, is how do we keep them virally suppressed? It's not just getting them there, but it's keeping them virally suppressed. And as a result of this, Really, 9090 has become the central pillars of the global uh, quest to end AIDS. And it has shifted the approach to HIV treatment from focusing, again, a number of people on antiretroviral therapy to really maximizing viral suppression at a population level. So here's the first question. Uh, what is the goal of 9090 in viral suppression? What percentage of people living with HIV globally will need to be suppressed? 50%, 65%, 73%, 85%, or 90%? And please go ahead and vote. So I was hoping like Master of the House or some other song here. Okay. Well, it would be great if we 90, 90, 90 also had 90% of people suppressed, but if you multiply 90 by 90, 90 is 90% of people are diagnosed, and 90% of those diagnosed are in therapy, and 90% of those that are in therapy are virally suppressed. That is what 90, 90, 90 means. And what that means is that 73% of people living with HIV globally will be virally suppressed. So 90 plus 90 plus 90, you get to 73%. So that's the answer. But really what has happened is that improving the quality of life of people with living with HIV and decreasing transmission have become at the center of whether, whether we treat or think about 90-90-90. And I think it's really fantastic that the new WHO guidelines not only talk about treatment, but talk about prevention. So if you think about treatment or prevention, antiretroviral therapy has really been at the center of both at this point in time. So where are we globally in 2018? I said we're 20 years away from getting to, we're two years away from getting to 2020, where are we? Well, globally, 70% of people living with HIV are thought to have been diagnosed. And of those that have been diagnosed, 77% uh, who know their status are in treatment. And of those on treatment, about 82% are virally suppressed. So, sounds pretty good. I mean, this is an incredible number, 70, 77, 82, but that really means that only about 44% of people living with HIV globally are virally suppressed. So we're really far from where we need to be. And at that global level, the biggest challenge to achieving 90-90-90 is the number of people tested. We have a huge gap in, the, in reaching the first 90. How do you get that number to be much higher? And that's really the big challenge globally. So in the US, we'll talk a little bit about the US 909090. Uh, what is the biggest challenge to getting to 909090? Is it HIV testing like it is globally? Is it linkage to care? Is it ART uh, initiation? 
retention and care, or biologic suppression? Please go ahead and vote. Okay, good. So everybody thinks everything is a challenge. Testing, linkage, retention. I mean, you know, we have global challenges. It, it's all of the above, right? Well, look, remember what the global problem looked like. This is how we look like. So in the US, 85% of people living with HIV have been thought to be diagnosed, which is great, right? I mean, we are really doing well in diagnosis, but only 57% of those diagnosed are retaining care. And of those retaining care, 80% are vitally suppressed. So really, our biggest challenge is in retention and care is that getting that second 90. We, we diagnose people, but we lose people because they're continually churning and leaving care, and that is our challenge in the U.S. achieving. But when you add, eight, when you do the 85, 57, 80, you get to about 49% of people living with HIV being virally suppressed in the U.S. I said globally 44, in the U.S. 49, very close. So we have a similar number of people suppressed biologically as the rest of the world, but we have a different problem. Our problem is not in, in the initial 90, but in the second 90. Now, the global numbers look good, but if you start digging down, if you start getting to specific populations, and I have two examples here, you can see, for example, men have sex with men in Moscow. Really, only 13% of them have been diagnosed. Of those diagnosed, 39% are antiretroviral therapy, and those that get started on therapy, 64% are virally suppressed. Or if you look at people who inject drugs in India, 41% have been diagnosed. 52% of those diagnosed are in antiretroviral therapy, and again, 83% of those on therapy are virally suppressed. Bottom line is if you get on therapy, people tend to do fairly well. Our problem is not really getting people virally suppressed nowadays. The drugs are much better, both here and globally. The big challenge is either how we diagnose people or how do we retain people. But from a perspective of subpopulations, we have a long way to go in the global epidemic. So has any African country reached 90-90-90? Has it been South Africa? Yeah, I don't look like Mike Sag. Uh, Malawi, Botswana, Ethiopia, or Kenya? Please vote. Good. So Botswana is the country that has achieved 909090. And uh, and again, uh, Donna just asked me to make an announcement. If you did not get lunch before, the lobster has arrived. There's lobster and prime rib back there. So please go ahead and go get your lunch. Uh, she apologizes for any delays. Uh, South Africa has not reached 909090, but I want to emphasize that to me at least continues to be, South Africa is a country in the world that has more people in antiretroviral therapy than any country in the, in the world. And in fact, to me, for example, it's truly outstanding to see the city of Durban, for example, has more people in antiretroviral therapy than the entire United States. Just to give you perspective of what the numbers are like. So these are countries that have reached 90-90-90, according to the UN. It's Botswana, Cambodia, Denmark, Iceland, Singapore, Sweden, and the UK. 
Now, a big argument and coming from many countries like the UK, for example, is, well, you know, we reached 90, 90, 90, but we still have an ongoing epidemic. And I think clearly many of us are realizing that just because you reach 90, 90, 90, you're not gonna end transmission. You're certainly gonna decrease it significantly. And in fact, in the UK, they've shown very nicely that it was really when they, they took 90-90-90 and added to this prep for men who have sex with men that the number of new infections in London have really started to plummet. So again, it's not just reaching 90-90-90, you really have to focus as well on prevention. And some of us are thinking and in, the, in the Amsterdam meeting to add another 90 or another number in how many people you have on PrEP as part of this continuum because you're not gonna end the epidemic if you don't also focus on, on prevention primarily and on, on getting people in PrEP. So let's talk about the first 90. I think despite the scale up in HIV testing, knowledge of SIR status globally continues to be a major problem and where a lot of improvement can happen. And this is particularly true for young people and for men. Men don't get tested. Men don't go to uh, healthcare facilities. And, and how do you test men and how do you test young people? So I think closing the gap is really gonna require doing different things. We have to prioritize HIV testing. We have to look at new technologies. We have to look at innovative service delivery strategies. Let's think about HIV testing in the US. Again, 50% of people you know, with HIV in the United States are unaware of their infection by CDC numbers. Well, 15% of 1.2 million people living with HIV in this country, it's about 200,000 people. So it's not a small number of individuals who don't know their serous status. And the problem is that this is not across the board. So the range of, of how many don't know their serous status goes from as low as 5.7% to as high as 18.5%. And in fact, 50% or more of the undiagnosed HIV infections are here in the South. And the Southern states in general have the highest percentage who are unaware of their status. So a lot of things that we could be doing, in increasing you know, opt-out HIV testing in clinical, in clinical settings, and a lot of other things that we ought to be doing are simply not being done, and I think we in the South have a long way to go to really emphasizing a lot of these best practices in order to decrease the number of people who don't know their serous status. The median delay from HIV infection to diagnosis right now in the, in, in the US is about three years. Again, an unacceptably high number in which transmission is continuing. And HIV tested in the prior 12 months is by CDC criteria, 71% for men who have sex with men, but it's only 58% for people who inject drugs, and about 41% for heterosexuals at risk. So again, a lot of different strategies, a lot of different things that we need to be doing in order to improve this. So I'm not gonna talk about all the strategies, I'm gonna mention one, but two obviously are important to look at. One is, is rapid testing. You know, rapid testing was really something that was started in, in, for resource-limited countries. It was only later that it was adapted in this country, way after it was started in resource-limited countries. And now we talk a lot about rapid testing as a strategy. But the one I wanna focus on is couples counseling and testing. Couples counseling and testing was an intervention developed by my colleague Susan Allen in Africa. And her, full, her whole idea was that about two-thirds of incidents, HIV, incident HIV infections in South Saharan Africa occur among stable HIV serodiscordant couples. It is stable couples, heterosexual couples, on which one or, or the other one doesn't know their serous status that is driving most of new infections. And through this intervention, which had a lot of, 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 of skeptics, I mean, the whole idea of bringing a couple into a room and testing them together and giving the results together well, was, well, this is gonna lead to a lot of violence, this is gonna lead to a lot of problems. All those things, when they were tested, was not the case, and in fact, Counseling the couple in, a, in that serodiscordant relationship actually showed to decrease transmission, 
And now we know it's a great intervention to go ahead and identify a couple in which one or both may need antiretroviral therapy or who will need PrEP. So it really becomes an entry point to making that decision. And at a global level, and here in the US, despite most HIV transmission occurring among men who have sex with men, there were no proven interventions available to test couples in, that, in a, in a same-sex relationship. So it was actually uh, my colleagues Patrick Sullivan and Rob Stevenson who said, well, you know, let's take that intervention developed by Susan Allen in Africa and, and adapt it to here to the United States and think about how do we, how do, we do this? And for this, for, for this background, they said, well, what's the proportion of a transmission, HIV transmissions that occurred from main sex partners and men who have sex with men? And they looked at five different cities in the United States. And you can see that, you know, depending how you look at it by, by all, by age, by race, by education, you know, more than 50% of HIV infections in men who have sex with men, except for the people over the age of 40, were occurring among stable relationships. And again, as Donna said, a stable relationship may be, we've been together for two weeks. But still, you know, the, the partners consider that a stable relationship. So what they did is they, they did a study basically to look at safety and acceptability of couples counseling and testing among men who have sex with men. And they did this as a randomized uh, controlled trial. And the bottom line from the study is shown in the graph at the bottom. You can see that, uh, CVCT, which is couples HIV counseling and testing, versus voluntary counseling and testing, which is just the usual HIV testing that we usually conduct. When they looked at intimate partner violence, relationship dissolution, or, or increasing the number of outside sex partners, there was really no difference. And in fact, you know, it, in some of the things it looked better, but there was really no statistically significant difference in, in any of those outcomes that people were very concerned about. So as a result of this, if you look at the, 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 the HIV effective interventions website of CDC, a high impact prevention. Now, this, this intervention, which is called testing together, which is about HIV testing among men who have sex with men, and the manual and everything is available there, and it's, it's something that is considered a best practice. So again, I would encourage you to think this as another intervention that we can implement that has been shown to be effective and that can be easily be used to decrease HIV transmission among men who have sex with men in our communities. Let's move on to the second 90. And the second 90, remember, is getting people diagnosed into antiretroviral therapy. And that implies you link them to care, you retain them in care, you start them on antiretroviral therapy. And here, uh, the, the approach of a treat-all and same-day initiation have become critical for success. And this requires link, uh, rapid expansion of proven methods for, for linking newly diagnosed people to care and redesigning clinic operations to improve efficiency, empower clients, and expedite treatment uptake. And again, looking at what is done in other countries, strategic use of community health workers and what we call differentiated care is gonna be really critical in achieving this. And I think there are lessons from several studies, but I want to, put to, to mention a couple of them. One is the SEARCH and the pop art studies, and I'm just gonna mention SEARCH. So I'll mention SEARCH and I'll mention RAPID as two approaches that have been used. So before I do, and I know this was asked uh, during the panel with, with Dr. Sag, uh, should rapid initiation, so immediately after diagnosis, be the standard of care? And the, the answers are yes, no, don't know, or as I say as a researcher, we need more data. Okay, we got more, more yeses here, good. I like that. Uh, 
and about 26% of the audience are academics that need more data. <clears throat> it, this is not, it's interesting because rapid initiation is now part of the WHO guidelines. It is not part of either the, H, the DHHS or the ISUSA guidelines up to this point. So again, the WHO guidelines are ahead of where we are international guidelines. So let's talk about search. And search is, is, a, is a study that search means sustainable East African research in, com in community health. And this is a cluster randomized study that is being conducted in Kenya and Uganda. And basically what they're doing is a test and treat strategy. So they test individuals and they immediately start them on therapy regardless of CD4 count versus specific, uh, uh, you know, so following the country standards in 32 batch rural communities. And what they saw is it, it, what in the intervention communities, what they do is they not just do HIV testing, they really do an annual multi-disease community health campaign. So if you go see these communities, they're doing HIV testing, but they're also testing for diabetes, for hypertension, they're doing testing for malaria, they're you know, doing a lot of other things. It's not just HIV testing. And people who are found HIV infected are facilitated linkage to care with immediate appointments, personal staff introductions, clinician phone number, one-time transportation voucher, tracking individuals who did not link, streamlining ART with flexible hours, reminders, HIV viral load measures, et cetera. So this is the result of, of search that were published uh, recently in JAMA by, uh, by Patterson and her colleagues. And you can see where the baseline was. So in this communities, the baseline was that 70% of people knew their service status, which is very similar to what we've heard from UNAIDS. Of those that knew their service status, 80% uh, were in antiretroviral therapy, and of those that knew that were antiretroviral therapy, 86% were suppressed. Well, at the end of two years of follow-up, not one year, but two years of follow-up of doing this intervention on an annual basis, in the intervention communities, now 97% of people are diagnosed, 94% of those diagnosed are in, in, in antiretroviral therapy, and 90% of those in antiretroviral therapy are biologically suppressed. In other words, this communities. Rural communities in Kenya and Uganda, in its intervention communities, have been able to achieve the 90-90-90 by using this approach. Now, if they can do it there, they, we can do it everywhere here. And that will be my message, that if rural communities in Uganda and Kenya were able to achieve this, we ought to be able to do it in our country. But we're not going to be able to do it unless we change things like they did in search. You need this sort of multi-component approach that really allows you to go to the community as opposed to expecting the community to come to see you in the clinic. The other intervention I'm going to mention is, is a rapid uh, intervention. And this is a study that was, uh, that was done in South Africa by Sydney Rosen and her, her group from, uh, from Boston. And basically, this was about initiating antiretroviral therapy at the first clinic visit. And this, again, our typical our mind thinks HIV testing, linkage to care, we get you into care, we give you counseling, then we start your antiretroviral therapy, and then we get you biologically suppressed. Here they changed the paradigm. They said, we diagnose you, we start your antiretroviral therapy, and we get you into clinical care. And what they saw in the study is that starting antiretroviral therapy at the initial visit, in other words, as soon as our diagnosis in South Africa, increased the number of people that accepted antiretroviral therapy by 36%, and increased the number that were vitally suppressed by 26%. And you can see, again, in red here, the standard arm, in, 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 in yellow, the intervention arm. So very clearly, starting this was highly effective in getting people into care and accepting antiretroviral therapy and getting virally suppressed. We in Atlanta have taken, uh, and there's other studies that have been done. Uh, San Francisco published their data. Uh, New York is doing something very similar here in, in, in Atlanta. 
uh, my colleagues Jonathan Colasanti and Wendy Armstrong and, and, and Jerry Sumitrani at, at the Grady IDP have taken the initiative of linking, of doing this, uh, and a similar uh, approach. And again, the approach is similar but not identical because what they've been doing so far is getting people started antiretroviral therapy as soon as they hit the clinic. And again, the time between diagnosis and hitting the clinic is still a variable that we need to work on, right? But once they get into the Grady IDP, you can see that before they started the intervention, and the intervention is called REACH, before they started the intervention, it took from days to first scheduled provider visit, from the time you, to, you reached the clinic, it took 15 days, they cut that down to four days. The days, the days to first attending provide, provider visit was from 17 days to five days, and the days to start antiretroviral therapy was cut from 21 days to seven days. Again, a significant improvement, and more important, importantly, the days to achieve viral suppression the days that you that took from somebody to achieve viral suppression went down from 67 days to 41 days. So very clearly, this intervention that worked, people got to the clinic and they were really gone to antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible. And you gotta realize, a lot of structural changes to the clinic had to be done for this to happen. We have made it up to now very hard for people. We put a lot of barriers to people getting the care they need. So the first thing that had to happen is really re-engineering the system but the second thing, we still have a lot of barriers in our country. Who's doing their ADAP? Who's gonna pay for the drugs? Who's gonna do this? So a lot of things that exist out there that are, are, are quite frankly bigger barriers than they are in, in Africa, where thanks to PEPFAR, you can just start people on therapy. You don't need to complete the ADAP form and this form and that form. So we have a lot to learn from PEPFAR to how to streamline the process, quite frankly. So how about achieving the third 90? Well, there are several interventions that have been done but here, patient uh, support to adherence to treatment is really something very important. And, and more importantly, it's actually reducing the number of individuals who are lost to follow-up. And I'm not gonna talk about these interventions because we really haven't done a good job implementing them in our country. And as I showed you, retention and care is our challenge. But peer support groups, SMS reminders, differentiated care have all been proven to be effective in African sites in decreasing uh, and increasing retention and care. So what are we doing? What can we do from those lessons to implement in this country in order to improve what's our biggest problem? And again, at a global level, expansion of viral load testing is critically important. And one of the things that is happening is that point of care technologies for viral load testing are becoming available. And over, over the next year or two, we will have things that look very similar to a, finger, to a finger stick for glucose that you will be able to do your viral load right there and then in your office as opposed to having to send it to a central lab to be done. So I want to conclude by, by saying that, uh, that I love this editorial by Wafel Sader, basically saying what got us here won't get us there. And I think we need to remember this. Just by doing what we've been doing up to now, we simply are not going to be able to achieve the 90-90-90 goals. We're not going to be able to reach the end of the epidemic. And we really need to start thinking outside the box. We need to re-engineer our systems. We need to break a lot of the paradigms that we've been stuck with. I mean, this paradigm that people need to be counselor for 20 visits before they actually start antiretroviral therapy. We've done a lot of things one way, really without any proven, proof of their efficacy. Quite frankly, there's zero, zero proof out there that pre-ART counseling makes any difference, yet we've made that part of our standard of care in most clinical settings. And I want to say that the NIH is paying attention to this for those of us interested in research. I just want to point out this recent program announcement that basically says implementing the most successful interventions to improve HIV care outcomes in U.S. communities. And what this is saying in this RFA is saying, take something developed in Africa, developed through uh, in our, our resource limited countries, and bring it to the U.S. and test it in this setting. 
So clearly the NIH is looking at what can we do in a, in a, in a resource envi research environment to test these interventions. So I, I think if we are to achieve the goals of the national aid strategy, uh, we need innovative approaches. And we're just not going to be able to do that if we continue doing the same thing. PEPFAR strategies to deliver quality care and treatment vary by country, but focusing on strengthening healthcare infrastructure and service delivery to provide quality of care clearly has to be one of them. And interventions have been primarily clinic-based with community outreach service for patients who had lost to follow-up and, and for HIV testing initiatives. But I think a lot of the lessons learned from interventions to improve HIV care in sub-Saharan Africa can be implemented in this country to improve, improve medical outcomes for those living with HIV in the United States. So at this point in time, I'm going to ask my colleague, uh, Jeff Lennox, to come up to the podium. Jeff? Hello, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Can you bump him? Can you? Hey, Jeff. I think today is uh, it's a very special day, uh, at least for many of us, because uh, if you work at the Grady IDP, I would ask you to stand up. So you can see all these people that work at the Grady IDP and who have, many of them have been at the forefront of the epidemic for many, many years. But today is particularly an important day because a person working at the Grady IDP, which is Ms. Sandra Ward, is retiring today. And, and Ms. Ward, I, I met Ms. Ward back in 1985, and she's been working in HIV since then. And she is somebody who's retiring today, yet still coming to this course today. I mean, how many people will do that? And she's come probably to every one of these courses. So on behalf of the HIV community in Atlanta, and of the, her colleagues at the great IDP, I want to say thank you, Sandra. And we have a little present for you. So over 30 years of HIV care. Carlos, you can't escape yet. Okay. Um, we're now going to open it up for questions from the audience. Um, you mentioned, Carlos, that we didn't have any evidence for a lot of the practices that we were using early on in the ART or the ART utilization era. If we were to get to 90-90-90 in the U.S., would that be enough to stop the epidemic, or would it just ameliorate it? I think it will decrease the uh, number of, of new infections, and I think there's some data uh, from cities, uh, San Francisco, uh, New York, other cities you know, that are, you know, now Birmingham is doing this, getting to zero initiatives are really making a difference. I think they're going to decrease the number of new infections significantly. I don't think we're going to get down to zero concentrated epidemics, primarily MSM epidemics with high transmission, and a lot of the transmission is happening in acute infection. And unless we really focus on acute infection, and unless we focus in scaling up PrEP, and we really have to do a big job in scaling up PrEP. Uh, I don't think we pres you present, I wasn't here in your talk, but at Croy they showed very, I think very depressingly, that despite the scale up of PrEP, we are way below where we need to be. 
is this, this is a, a, an intervention that I think about as a vaccine and we simply have not scaled up the way we should. So I think we really need to do a, a public health approach to PrEP expansion in order to really get there. Yeah, that was the genesis of my question. Also, the exact same question just got handed up. You know, can we do it without prep? And I think the no, answer is no. I think you can no. do it. I think I think the I think the data is coming very clear, and I think London probably has the best data that you really have to do it with prep. So here's a question I've heard several times over the years, and I think it's becoming more um, apropos in these days. Do you think it would be feasible to require HIV testing prior to getting married? Oh my God, I, I feel like deja vu again. I yeah. feel like Betty Price up here being asked that question. The answer, the answer is no. Uh, people, you know, people have sex before marriage. You've heard that, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, or maybe this is new. Maybe it's something they've never heard before. Uh, I think, I think we need to encourage people to get HIV tested. I think it's not should be before marriage or before this or before that. We need to do a better job getting people HIV tested and getting people tested way before. And again. I had this discussion one time at a congressional hearing when people were saying, uh, I was being questioned by a staffer saying, well, we need to do HIV testing before marriage. And I said, yeah, but you're, you're against gay marriage, right? So are you saying you're gonna propose now gay marriage to be legal in order to test gay men? And they looked at me and said, oh, no. <laughs> so so I, think, I think it's a very, it's quite frankly, it's a, a, not a evidence-based argument and yeah. we need to get away from that. Yeah. A question from the audience? I just saw um, new data from 2016 showing that um, right behind Washington, D.C., Georgia had the highest HIV incidence rates in the country. And I'm wondering what you think uh, the reason is for that and how you think Atlanta's epidemic is different from the epidemic in rural parts of Georgia. Okay, so I'm going to say it's a long answer, so I'm not going to give it right now, but I can say, please, I want to encourage you, if you go to the Croy website, it's free and open to the public. Look at the talk I gave on Monday afternoon in a session entitled Improving the HIV Care Cascade in a, in a, in a country like the US that doesn't have a healthcare system. And I gave a talk about the epidemic. I think a lot of the epidemic in the South is driven by social determinants of health. It's poverty, it's, 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 it's lack of education, it's lack of health insurance. And if you look at the data, the biggest thing we can do to decrease HIV infection in, this, in the states, in the southern states, is to get people health insurance. So expand Medicaid. I mean, let's be real clear, that is the most effective HIV prevention intervention. And as HIV clinicians, we need to make that message loud and clear. It is expanding access to medical care who's gonna, what's gonna change the outcome of the epidemic in the south. The next question, with the same day initiation of ART, do you worry about the false positives on the screening test, and what, what should your degree of concern so, be? So we talked a lot about that. I think that if you are doing HIV testing with one rapid test, and again, I'm gonna go back to the global epidemic, right? CDC recommendations in, in, in resource-limited settings is you do one rapid test, if it's positive, you do a second rapid test with a different second rapid test, not the same brand, but a different brand. And if both are positive, you're positive. There's no, HIV testing does not, no longer, don't use the word confirmation anymore. My wife is a clinical pathologist, so I use confirmation, she slaps me in the head. We're not confirming HIV test any, diagnosed anymore. In this country, we do a fourth generation, after the fourth generation, we do a differentiation test. And then we go to viral load. There's no role anymore for confirmatory testing. The, the Western blot, if you ever order Western blot, 
you are failed in HIV. I mean, that is not, not a test we should be, no longer need to do except for very, very few circumstances. So what would you do if I had a fourth generation test today that was positive, and I saw the patient, let's say, in the emergency room, I would immediately ask for either a differentiated test or, or another rapid test, a third generation test, and if that's positive, I will start the individual in therapy. The chances of having two false positives will be very, very low. Okay, thanks a lot, Carlos. We're gonna now move into our next speaker. Mike's gonna make.